0: Welcome to another one of the Advent Calendar edition of the Cood Street Podcast. This is Jonathan. This is Gary Wolf. No, Jonathan Strawn is, is the other guy. Um, at any rate, I'm delighted to have today um, one of the other authors of books we'll be recommending for 2022, Rachel Swirsky. Thank you for joining us, Rachel.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, let's uh, start with uh, one of the questions that we always start with, which is what have you been reading lately?
1: Um. I think uh, last time we spoke, had I said I was reading Dream of the Red Chamber, right. um, it's it's a bit of a long book, and I wanted to take a second look at it. Um, I've been very excited about, um, about um, its historical impact. Um, otherwise, I've been reading these, uh, the very fun Ursula Vernon paladin novels. Oh, good. Romances, just... Uh, Great reads for when you don't want to, you know, immerse yourself in um, 18th century China.
0: <laughs> yeah, my partner's been reading those as well, uh, and uh, it's um, they're, they're apparently very readable. Dale, we're talking about T. Kingfisher. Ah, okay. Well, right, uh,
1: right. Not Ursula Vernon. No. T. Kingfisher.
0: Yes. Uh, the, Ursula Vernon is also T. Kingfisher, but the books are separate, I gather. Uh, yeah. I, I have just something to ask about the... Dream of the Red Chamber. I tried reading it years ago, and I've heard that subsequent translations are much more readable than what I tried.
1: And supposedly more accurate as well. Um, well, I suppose it depends on what you mean by accurate. Um, the translation that I have um, is less worried about making sure that each word is precisely translated and a little bit more concerned with trying to get across um, the actual um in-context meaning of things. So, for instance, classical Chinese is written um, as Latin or uh, Old English um, when people are studying it in school because that's really the analog that we would be familiar with. Um, and I think the other translation is much more literal.
0: That's probably what, uh, what what I was encountering. It didn't seem it didn't seem strange enough to me. It seemed like it had been Westernized to, to the extent that I didn't feel like I was getting the full flavor. But is there, are you reading this for research or for uh, something you've always wanted to do? Or it's a, it's a dog friend, to read.
1: <laughs> My friend, P.H. Lee, um, who has been extremely successful lately, um, their stories are everywhere, very exciting, um, is obsessed with this book and tried to get me to read it for five years, during which I was like, I don't know, five volumes. But once I picked it up, I was like, yes, I have to actually read through this. Um, It's fascinating because it starts as fantasy, and then there's a little bit of a fantasy element, but it starts like in the fairy world with a sentient stone and a sentient flower, and then it's like, by the way, we're talking about a family. I like that tension.
0: Yeah, that's what drew me into it initially. Uh, But uh, let's move on to something which I think is one of the more fascinating science fiction novels, well, novellas in quite a while, which is January 15th. Thank Um, you. And I want you to describe it before I give you my bright idea about it, which I'm sure you've already thought of anyway. But tell us what the premise and what the characters uh, are in
1: there. It's the story of four different people uh, during the day that they receive their universal uh, basic income in a future United States that was able to implement that program, and the ways in which having a universal basic income has both improved their lives and caused other kinds of disturbances, or not improved their lives, its benefits, and you know some of its um, not even—I mean, some of the problems that can come up with it. But even just uh, thinking about what this might play out with in the future without trying to um politically bias it toward yes let's do that or no let's not
0: but one of the things that okay this is this is what occurred to me and makes it such an unusual uh, such an unusual science fiction story in that um there's some Im- implication that something bad happened which led to right. i think you use the term a moment of political will and that's what's unusual about it to me it's really not based on uh, science fiction technology on new inventions on new discoveries on, it, it's based on uh, well policy and what you call political will in other words it's a the science fiction idea and it is something we could choose to do now yeah without any technology and when you think about it that's a very unusual approach for for a science fiction story
1: I think you're um, you're um, right about that yeah. I published a a short story in uh, Disabled People Destroy Science Fiction a few years ago um, where uh, it postulates a world in which disabled people have access to social services um, that they currently don't. it's very hard for disabled people to actually access, you know, the yes. disability payments and and all sorts of services. Like it's it's pretty it's a pretty complicated situation. Um and so this was a future in which many of those legal problems had been ironed out. And the thing that I found really interesting was when it went out, um some people didn't even recognize that as a science fictional element. Um now, I mean, some of that is I think people just don't know that life is difficult for disabled people in this way, and they just weren't yes. aware that there was a change there. But I think also they weren't looking for that to be a change, right? Um, because I feel like it's framed in the story, definitely the way you would put the technology in is this central concept that you're moving around. Um, so it was interesting to me that it was invisible to
0: some folks. Well, I mean, it's uh, it's, it's very easy to read this as a as, as a kind of well, you're right it's, it's it's not an editorial in favor of it or not in favor of it. and there are to get back to january 15th buzz comes there floating cameras there's science fictional furniture in it but i was trying to think back this this must be what it would have been like for somebody in 1932 to imagine what social security might be like and now i'm wondering is there such I, i've not had any luck in tracing it at all i gather there's some evidence that Upton Sinclair wrote some kind of scenarios that would huh. involve that. But I don't know about, there's very little science fiction about this, and I think that's what it's what makes it provocative. What makes it work as a novella, of course, is you have four interesting characters in very different life circumstances who would be interesting to read about even if this were not set in if you're a very compelling character. Uh, one is involved in a cult-like religion, which is well, basically very much like a mainstream religion. Uh, and I wonder if you've gotten feedback about that.
1: Um, it's uh, it ex- it's an existent cult. Um, they're pretty much exactly the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. Um, the, the science fictional offshoot of that is just uh, actually the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints have been in a period of transition, and this is a slightly um, dated version. Um, uh, they probably in a... Um, without the science fictional excuses that I use, wouldn't be in Utah, um, because Utah, being filled with Latter-day Saints who don't like the weird culty elements, um, is uh, pretty good about having laws about um, forbidding some of the stuff that they do that other states have not necessarily caught up to yet. Um, but yeah, reading that research was interesting and disturbing. Um One of the phenomena that happens because of the fact that it's a polygynous uh, culture is that you can't have as many men as women. You have to have a large surplus of women. And so they exile young boys, usually around adolescence. They just will often just leave them or beat them and then leave them. And um, it's horrific. Obviously, it's a terrible human rights abuse. Um, And I was interested to see... um, that people also didn't know about that already. Um, so actually the main character of Big Love, which um, has its own complicated depiction problems, but the main character of Big Love was a boy who was, uh, ex- you know, abandoned from his uh, fundamentalist uh, um, family. Yeah.
0: Let's move on to our third question, which is completely optional, but is this, it's this time of year. Uh, is there a favorite book you return to when you tell people to read. It doesn't even have to be a Christmas book or a New Year's book or a Hanukkah.
1: Um, The thing that comes to mind right now is my friend Barry Deutsch's graphic novel, um, Hereville. I think it comes to mind because you said Hanukkah and I was like, Jewishness, uh, which is um, the story of a 10-year-old Hasidic Orthodox Jewish girl. Um, who wants to fight dragons and trolls. So she uh, goes out to find a magic sword and ends up in like a knitting contest. And I was reading a list of recommendations recently for books to buy for kids this year. And I was really pleased to see it on there since it came out, I don't know, 10 years ago. Well, and it's just a charming novel. It's, it's, or, well, comic, graphic novel. Yeah,
0: sounds delightful. I've not heard of it. Our last question, what are we going to expect next from Rachel Sworski?
1: Well, um, Jonathan just bought a story of mine for, uh, for Tor.com, which is a Woodhouse pastiche-ish, because I listened to a ton of Woodhouse over um, the pandemic, because it's uh, some of it's in public domain or cool. produced by the BBC. Um, and uh, I was listening in audio. Uh, but also, I just finished the first draft of my second novel. The first one is in a drawer. Uh So my agent has been waiting very patiently for this for uh, several years and I appreciate that. Um, And I'm excited to try to hammer it into a shape that I can share. It's an idea that I got when I was 16 after my brother's suicide attempt when I was 13, which profoundly affected me and tossed me into thinking about some issues of disability, which have grown more sophisticated as I've gotten older. Uh And I am, you know, found the ways in which I am disabled. Uh, And I'm also thinking about a friend of mine who I don't know whether she committed suicide or had a drug overdose when she was 21 or so. Um, And so that sort of plays into those are things I've incorporated into the original idea. Mm-hmm. But if I finish it next year, I get to say I worked on it for 25 years, which seems like a cool Excellent. number Not bad. Is that.
0: <laughs> is this going to be a speculative novel or is it going to be mainstream? Or is there a difference anymore?
1: Um, it uh, has a speculative element. So certainly I think people can read it as fantasy or science fiction. I have no idea how my agent's going to want to market it. Um, you know, whatever... <laughs> Whatever he thinks will be most successful, but uh, it's about an agoraphobic telepath um, Uh who senses other people's minds essentially as trash, Uh, trash sensory impressions that make no sense and make it impossible for her to navigate in any situation where there are other people. And her relationship with a um, drug addicted uh, teenager who is having her first um, manic episode and has been kicked out of her house.
0: Sounds powerful and fascinating and sounds like that's plenty of a speculative development to make uh, make your yeah. reader science fiction readers want to follow uh, We're past the 10 minute mark that I promised you we wouldn't go past so I want to uh, thank you again We've been talking with uh, Rachel Swirsky on this edition of the Coot Street podcast. I'm Gary Wolpe and thank you again Rachel.
1: Thanks so much